I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we don't just accept the traditional explanations for what the Bible says, but rather we test them to discern if they are in fact correct. Well, this week we continue on in the book of Leviticus, this ancient handbook of worship that was given to Israel so that they might know how to worship their God without causing offense unintentionally. Because if you study ancient Near East royalty, the slightest offense could lead to death, just as we're going to see in upcoming weeks when we get to Nadav and Avihu. As we've discussed for the last few weeks, the name of the book of Leviticus in English leaves a lot to be desired. For the book deals with a lot more than simply how the Levites are to act in the worship practices of Hashem. Instead, in the Hebrew, this book is called Vayikra, which means, and he called. And this title, it fits the book so much better, in my opinion. For this book truly is a revelation of what it means to worship Hashem for all who are called by Hashem to worship Him. Because, one, no one truly worships God without being called to do so. John 6.44 says, No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I shall raise him up in the last day. And two, being called to serve is a theme that's recognized all through Scripture. Whether it was Abraham who was called out of Ur in Genesis 12.1, and Hashem said to Avram, Go yourself out of the land from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I show you. Or whether it's Israel who is called to worship, Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus said Hashem, your creator, O Yaakov, and he who formed you, O Yisrael, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or Jeremiah, who was called while still in the womb, in Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you, and before you came out of the womb, I did set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Or each and every one of us who has heard the call of Hashem in our own lives. Matthew twenty-two fourteen, For many are called, but few are chosen. Or Romans eight twenty-eight, For we know that all matters work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The fact of the matter is, if you are in relationship with Hashem, the God of all creation, then you have been called into that relationship. And as a person who has been called to worship Hashem, Vayikra is for you. It's not just a dusty tome for an ancient people, it's the handbook of how to worship a God of order. Because before we can properly worship, even if the place of worship is right next to you, 
There are things that must be understood for your own safety and for the protection of His holiness. And so this book that begins that discussion begins it with the topic of sacrifice. Now, as we've discovered, each of the sacrifices contained in this book describe the attitudes that worshipers should adopt when approaching the God of all creation. Those attitudes include a stance of awe and fear of Hashem as depicted in the Olah sacrifice, gift-giving or tribute as contained in the Mincha offering, or there's fellowship, peace, or friendship as revealed in the Shlamim sacrifice in several ways, the Thanksgiving sacrifice which celebrates something that God has done for you, the vow offering which seals a promise that the worshiper makes to do something for someone else or for God, or the voluntary sacrifice which the worshiper gives just because they want to eat a meal in the presence of God. And in the sin sacrifice is contained a recognition of our own mortality and the inherent uncleanness and this vast gulf that must be crossed for man to come into the presence of a holy God. This week we finish the discussion of the various types of sacrifice within the Asham sacrifice, and that is the guilt sacrifice. We just read about the sin sacrifice, and if we read through the guilt sacrifice instructions quickly, it is easy to assume that there's little to no difference between the two. But as we're going to see, that's not quite accurate. So open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5, and let's read this week's Parsha. I do want to make a statement, though. This week's Parsha contains a difference between the numbering in the English and the numbering in the Hebrew. So some of you, if you have your Hebrew numbering, we're going to be reading through the entirety of chapter 5. Others, if you have the English numbering, we're going to be reading through chapter 6, verse 8. From here on out, I'm going to be referring to the English numbering. So if you have the Hebrew numbering, just be aware of that. Any verse numbers that I reference in chapter 6 will be in chapter 5 for you. So let's open up and read. Leviticus 5, 1-6-7 And when a being sins, in that he has heard the voice of swearing, and is a witness, or has seen, or has known, but does not reveal it, he shall bear his crookedness. Or when a being touches any unclean matter, or the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean creeping creatures, and it has been hidden from him, he is unclean and guilty. Or when he touches uncleanness of man, any of his uncleanness by which he is unclean, and it has been hidden from him, when he shall know it, then he shall be guilty. Or when a being swears, speaking rashly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whether it is that a man swears rashly with an oath, and it has been hidden from him, when he shall know it, then he shall be guilty of one of these. And it shall be when he is guilty of one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. And he shall bring a guilt offering to Hashem for his sin which he has sinned, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a female goat, as a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. And if he is unable to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to Hashem he who has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering, and the other for an ascending offering. And he shall bring them to the priest, who shall bring near that which is for the sin offering first, and nib off its head from its neck, but not sever it. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall prepare the second as an ascending offering, according to the right ruling. And the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin which he has sinned, and it shall be forgiven him. 
But if he is unable to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he whose sin shall bring of his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He puts no oil on it, nor does he put any frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his hand filled with it as a remembrance portion, and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to Hashem. It is a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he has sinned in any of these, and it shall be forgiven him, and it shall be the priest's like a grain offering. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, When a being commits a trespass and has sinned by mistake against the set-apart matters of Hashem, he shall bring to Hashem as his guilt offering a ram, a perfect one from the flock, with your valuation in shekels of silver, according to the shekel for the set-apart place, as a guilt offering. And he shall make good for the sin that he has done against that which is set apart, and shall add one-fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it shall be forgiven him. And when any being sins and has done what is not to be done against any of the commands of Hashem, though he knew it not, yet he shall be guilty, and shall bear his crookedness. Then he shall bring to the priest a ram, a perfect one from the flock, with your valuation as a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for his mistake he committed unintentionally, though he did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was truly guilty before Hashem. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, When any being sins and committed a trespass against Hashem, and has lied to his neighbor about a deposit, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or shall extort from his neighbor, or has found what was lost and has lied concerning it, or did swear falsely so that he sins in regard to any one of these that a man does, then it shall be when he sins and shall be guilty that he shall return what he took by robbery, or what he has extorted, or the deposit which was deposited with him, or the lost item which he found, or all that about which he swore falsely. He shall repay its total value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whom it belongs on the day of his guilt offering. Then he brings the guilt offering to Hashem, a ram, a perfect one from the flock, with your valuation as a guilt offering to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him before Hashem, and he shall be forgiven for whatever he did that made him guilty. So last week as we opened, we examined a few words that bear definitions that mean a thing, but also mean their opposite. Words like overlook, which means a place to stop in order to see a thing, but can also mean to not see a thing while you're looking for it. Or a word like left, which can be used to refer to a thing that remains, but it can also be used to refer to a thing that has also departed. Well, one word that we stopped in on and examined closely was the word dust. This word can mean a powdery substance itself, the dust on the shelf. It can also mean adding powder to something, such as dusting a cake. But it can also mean the action taken to remove this powdery substance, such as dust the shelf. Now, these examples of English words that work in this way, they helped us to recognize that the word sin in the Hebrew acts a very similar way. This is not an exact one-to-one comparison, but it does provide a mental framework that we can then use to understand this concept. Sin is a thing that we are, the, the dust that attaches itself to us, so to speak. But sin is also a thing that we can do. That's the act of dusting the cake. And sin is also the action that's taken to remove the result of these two things. The sin sacrificed, for example. Now, the word sin in Hebrew works in a very similar way to the word dust. 
And what is a thing called when it is recognized that it's dusty? Well, it's dirty. One would even say that this thing is unclean. And that is what a person who has sin clinging to them is called in Scripture. Unclean. Now, whether it's a woman who had just given birth, because there is an element of our sinful nature present in this life event. The act itself is not sinful, but it is something that occurs the way it does because of sin. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I greatly increase your sorrow and your conception. Bring forth children in pain, and your desire is for your husband, and he does rule over you. An unclean person can also be a person who suffers from one of a number of health conditions, whether it's arot or leprosy, which is the granddaddy of an unclean expression in the human flesh, or any abnormal discharge that occurs. These situations are not acts of sin. They're simply rather a reality that occurs because of our sinful state. So when we turn the page in Leviticus from the sin sacrifice to the guilt sacrifice, we discover something similar happening with the word asham. Now the word asham bears within it several meanings in the Hebrew. Asham means guilt, the status of being guilty of an offense towards God or towards another person. But asham also means the sacrifice that deals with this guilt in some way. That's the sacrifice that we're reading of beginning in this chapter. Now, the word asham is really cool because I believe it's where we get our word shame. Someone who is guilty before God is in shame. And so the word shame in English, I believe, comes from asham. I don't have any proof on that, but that's what I believe. Now, this is a sacrifice for guilt. But the first question that I had when approaching this is just how is guilt different than sin? Now, in traditional Christianity, we're told that sin invariably leads to guilt. But here in the sacrificial system, we find no such thing. Sin creates uncleanness. And guilt is not always a byproduct of sin. A woman giving birth is steeped in her sin nature while giving birth, and afterwards she is not guilty of committing a sin. Guilt and sin are not exactly the same as we will soon discover. So how do sin and guilt differ from each other? Well, the descriptions of these sacrifices, and more importantly, the differences, they give us the keys that we need to unlock this mystery, if we pay close attention to the text. Now, if you turn to scholars on the subject, you'll arrive at multiple understandings of just how these two things differ from each other. I have found five possibilities that we can examine and then reflect on. So, number one, the thought is that sin and guilt are no different. These words are used synonymously in the Hebrew text. You can see this chapter for the text that might seem to support this idea. Leviticus 5, 5 through 6, and it shall be when he is guilty of one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned, and he shall bring his guilt offering to Hashem for his sin which he has sinned. A female from the flock, a lamb, or a female goat as a sin offering, the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Now verse 6 specifically seems to use the term guilt offering and sin offering interchangeably. And so sin and guilt are the same thing, of course. Now this is a view that I... And I would be willing to bet that many of you who grew up in the traditional Christian view were told. But this doesn't work with the text. Otherwise, a person who has an abnormal discharge is guilty of something. 
The woman giving birth is likewise guilty of a trespass in some way, and that's simply not the case. These things do not make a person guilty, and they do not occur because a person is guilty. And this was a fact that was common throughout history that Yeshua dispelled for us. John chapter 9, verse 2 through 3 says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parent, that he should be born blind? They're equating this man's condition with guilt, that someone sinned. And Yeshua answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. His sickness and the sickness in you is not a result of being guilty in sin, necessarily. But it is a result of our sin nature. Now, that's not to say that there are not sicknesses that can arise because of spiritual influence that have been caused by sin that has occurred within us or to us. But not all sickness is caused by sin. Sickness is simply the result of a sin-filled world, but there's no guilt associated with these things. Unless, unless one were to come into God's presence while in that state, with that uncleanness still clinging to them, then, then there's guilt. But simply being subject to these things, they bear no guilt, but cleansing them does require sin sacrifice. Now, this particular outlook, as we just looked through, is not accurate. Guilt is not always the byproduct of sin. The, the two are not equivalent. So how else could we understand the difference between guilt sacrifice and the sin sacrifice? The second understanding of how sin and guilt differ is described best as the Ten Commandments view. Sin sacrifice is for an offense of the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments. Guilt sacrifice is for an offense of the second five. Now, while on the surface, this view may seem to hold water, especially as a situation such as bearing false witness and robbery are covered under the guilt sacrifice, if we read all of Leviticus 5, we discover that this simply cannot be accurate. Leviticus 5 verse 15 when a being commits a trespass and has sinned by mistake against the holy matters of Hashem, then he shall bring to Hashem as its guilt offering a ram, a perfect one from the flock, with your valuation in shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the holy place, as a guilt offering. As we read here, guilt is incurred by trespassing against the holy things of God. These things, they're not part of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Neither is coming in contact with the carcass of an unclean animal as discussed in Leviticus 5, 2-3. Add to this that the woman who gives birth is to bring a sin offering. How is giving birth a transgression of the first five commands? Once again, we can discard this view as inaccurate when we consider the entirety of the text and what it has to say on the subject. The third view of how sin and guilt are different is summed up in this way. Sin offerings cover the human nature of man, our inherent sinfulness within us. Guilt offerings cover the actions that arise from the commission of a sin. Once again, a surface reading might lend itself to this understanding. The woman giving birth, sacrifices on Yom Kippur, they lend themselves easily to the idea that the sin sacrifice covers our sinful nature, the uncleanness that is inherent in us. And the descriptions of the actions at the beginning of chapter 5 and 6 that would determine when a guilt offering is to be brought also seem to uphold this idea. There's just one problem. 
In chapter 4, we read over and over that the sin sacrifice is to be brought when a person sins by mistake. Now that phrase, sins by mistake, carries a lot of meaning in it. This means that sin is something that a person can do, either willfully or in ignorance, and when done in ignorance, it can occur without incurring guilt. And if this is the case, if a person can, through ignorance, commit a sin, then the sin sacrifice cannot be limited to cleansing only the sin nature. A person does not commit their sin nature. There has to be another explanation. So, the fourth option that we find in scholarly discussions of this topic is the idea that the sin offering is for a wrong that was done, and a guilt offering is for a right that was not done. Once again, it is a quick and limited reading that arrives at this conclusion. We do read in chapter 5 that the sin sacrifice is for a sin that was committed in error or ignorance, but we do not read the corollary when it comes to the guilt offering. In fact, Leviticus 6, 2-3 says, When a being sins and committed a trespass against Hashem, and has lied to his neighbor about a deposit or about a pledge or about a robbery, and shall extort from his neighbor, or has found what was lost and has lied concerning it, or did swear falsely so that he sins in regard to any one of these things that a man does. The guilt offering covers when a person extorts his neighbor or lies about a pledge or robbery or has sworn falsely. These things, they bring guilt on a person. They're not simply a right that was not done. Besides, the line between a wrong that was done and a right that was undone is too semantic for my tastes. And I'm one who will be the first to point out the semantics when I think they apply. Extorting a neighbor, is that a right, acting in justice, that is undone? Or is that an active wrong that is being done? Who can say? And so basically our entire understanding of the difference between sin and guilt when it comes to sacrifice, basing it on a semantic such as this, is shaky at best in my opinion. This possibility is one that can again be dismissed when we consider all that is said in scripture in regards to these things. The fifth possibility from scholarly sources is perhaps the best that I've run across. Sin is for an offense in which no one was harmed. Guilt is for an offense in which there was another party harmed, and that other party could be either God or man. Now, this definition covers sin as represented by birth. The various sicknesses allows for guilt to be associated with all of the things described in chapter 5 and 6. Sin against a fellow man? Guilt. Sin against God by trespassing the holy things? Guilt. Sin by envying something of your neighbors or having evil thoughts? There is still sin there but is there guilt? This seems so close, but just as before, there's this one small problem. Sin offerings and guilt offerings are equated to each other in Leviticus 5.6. This view of the sin and the guilt offering once again seeks to separate them out as if they are different things. Now, don't get me wrong, this is perhaps the best definition that I have found in my studies, but rather than understanding guilt as different than sin, or two circles that are next to each other. Rather, I think that if we see them as a set of nested circles in a Venn diagram, we get a better idea. So that's a large circle with a smaller circle inside of it. The largest circle is named sin. Our entire world and humanity as a whole, and each one of us individually, we exist within that circle. 
we cannot escape that circle of sin while living in the flesh. Guilt is then a smaller circle within the sin circle that we all fall into from time to time as well. But this circle is one that we can escape through confession of the wrong that we have committed and the forgiveness that God gives us through the blood of Yeshua. I believe that if we must systematize the difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering, this is perhaps the best way that I can find of doing so. But even this falls short in some ways when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of comparison between these two sacrifices. So let's go ahead and do that now. In the sin sacrifice, we find that there is a gradation of what is to be offered based on a person's status in the community. If it's a priest, then there's a bull. If it's a ruler, then it's a male goat. If it's a layman, then a female goat or a lamb. Or if he's poor, then there's a pigeon or a dove is also acceptable as a sin offering. There are a few other cases where a pigeon or a dove are also acceptable as a sin offering. Numbers chapter 6, verse 9 through 12. In this case, someone dies next to a Nazarite, there is sin there, but there's also guilt because he didn't fulfill his vow. Now, in the case of an abnormal bodily discharge, we read the same thing, Leviticus 15, 13 through 15. In this case, on the eighth day of this condition being gone, the person brings two birds for his sin offering. Then there's the purification after childbirth, which I keep talking about, Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. Or there's the purification for a leper, Leviticus 14, 21 through 23. With the guilt sacrifice, however, we discover that it begins with a female goat or lamb. And as with the sin sacrifice contained in these instructions for the guilt sacrifice, there is a gradation that occurs as well. This time, rather than being based on a person's status and community, this gradation is based solely on a person's ability to afford the sacrifice. If unable to bring a lamb, then you bring two pit doves or pigeons. And if unable to bring doves or pigeons, then a simple grain offering can be brought as a guilt sacrifice. So while the sin offering has more to do with our proximity to God, the guilt offering has within it a measure of grace, mercy, compassion, as everyone was able to afford to bring this sacrifice before Hashem. No one was prevented as long as they were in a clean state. And so while those who could not atone for their sins through the offering of a sin sacrifice due to cost, they would still have their sins dealt with on Yom Kippur. And those who were guilty of an offense in some way they could still afford to have their guilt covered. Now, moving on, the sin sacrifice only covered ignorant sins or sin made in error, at least as it's described in Leviticus chapter 4. But with the guilt offering, we discover that it is for unintentional sins in some cases, but in other cases, it covers purposeful sins. Leviticus 5.1 explore this concept. Leviticus 6.1-7 also explore this concept, but there's another place in Leviticus that also explores this. Leviticus 19, 20-22 When a man who has intercourse with a woman who is a female servant engaged to a man and to be ransomed, but she has not been ransomed nor set free, then there should be an inquiry, but they are not put to death, because she was not free, and he shall bring his guilt offering to Hashem, to the door of the tent of appointment, a ram as a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before Hashem for his sin which he has done, 
and the sin which he has sinned shall be forgiven him. Each of the sins described in these verses are sins that were committed willfully. One might call these high-handed sins. But there is a thought in Judaism and elsewhere that there is no sacrifice for a willful sin. But that's not entirely accurate as we see here. There are some few cases of willful sin which can be covered by the guilt sacrifice. Now with the sin offering, just bringing the animal was enough. There is nothing more that's required and a person's uncleanness is forgiven and they were allowed to approach to worship God. With many of the guilt sacrifices, there is a form of restitution that's required alongside the sacrifice. Now, whether it's the trespass against the holy things of Hashem, which require a 20% or one-fifth payment above and beyond the ram that was offered, or the restitution that's required to a victim according to Exodus 22 for a theft, extortion, or a lie about a pledge or deposit. Many of the guilt sacrifices require something to be given above and beyond the sacrifice itself. The action that brought the guilt must be repaid to the offended party, as well as there being a form of restitution to God himself. But not every guilt offering was accompanied by restitution. The situations at the beginning of chapter 5, such as coming in contact with uncleanness of another, or touching the carcass of an animal unknowingly, There's no additional restitution to be made. And in these cases, I think we need to understand coming into contact with these things unknowingly and then going in before God. Just coming into contact with these things unknowingly, those are not necessarily sin. I don't believe that there's guilt associated with that because there's nowhere else where that is expounded. However, coming in before Hashem with uncleanness on you, that is is a guilt offense. Now with the sin offering, the blood of the animals that have been brought into the tabernacle, the bulls for the priest or the congregation, the entire animals burned outside the camp after the appropriate bits are then put on, are put on the altar. But with the animals that do not have the blood taken into the tabernacle, the remainder of the animal then belongs to the priests to eat. Leviticus 6, 25 through 26 Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the Torah of the sin offering. In the place where the ascending offering is slain, the sin offering is slain before Hashem. It is most holy. The priest who is making atonement eats it. In the holy place it is eaten, in the courtyard of the tent of appointment. But with the guilt offering, every animal that's offered is eaten by the priests. Leviticus 7, 5-6 and the priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering made by fire to Hashem. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests eat it. It is eaten in the holy place. It is most holy. And finally, in the case of the sin sacrifice, there is an association with the sacrificed animal that occurs, but that is the limit. In the case of the guilt sacrifice, there is an additional confession of the sin that is occurring. Being a sinful human is not something that needs to be confessed, but it is something that we need to acknowledge, and the sacrifice itself acknowledges that. However, being guilty of trespass or offense is something that needs to be confessed before the Father. Confession of sin is central to forgiveness when we are guilty. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is trustworthy and righteous to forgive us of the sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what can we take from all of this? Well, one, sin is messy and sin is everywhere. 
Sin is in our flesh. Sin is in our hearts. Sin is in our minds. But sin is also the actions that we take as we interact with each other and with God. And just as messy as the definitions of sin is the atonement for our sins. And this breakdown, as I went through it, reveals the problem with attempting to systematize the differences between the sin offering and the guilt offering, as we did before, and as nearly every other scholar and teacher has attempted to do. It's nearly impossible to split out the guilt sacrifice from the sin sacrifice, because they simply cannot be separated. The one is nested snugly within the other. And the thing that most scholars attempt to point to is the thing that separates them. But as we discovered, these two types of sacrifice, they overlap in so many ways. There's nearly always an exception to any clear-cut definition that we could come up with to separate these two out. These two sacrifices and the way that they're related to us, they seem to dare us to attempt to categorize the one against the other. They goad us to attempt to systematize them, and yet every time that we grasp a thread that we think might play out, we find that there's that one exception, that one example, that one verse, that one word that prevents us from doing so. And this reveals the mystery of sin and guilt. If we were able to systematize the difference between sin and guilt, we would come up with a list of the things that we can do to avoid sin. And then in doing so, over the years and ages, the list that was developed by one person or even a group of people, that list would then become the de facto means of avoiding sin. I mean, it's happened already. How many laws are there in the Torah? Well, if you look to the sages, there's 613. They did exactly this. And we as humans, this is what we tend to do we would draw a fine line between sin and guilt, and then we would be sure that our actions fell into only one category. But Scripture defies that kind of definition, because the actions are not the primary issue at stake here. It is the heart that leads one to take certain actions over the other. And this has been the case over the past few millennia as the Torah has been systematized into those 613 commands of Judaism. Their stance is that if you keep these 613 commands, then you have nothing to worry about. Yet doing this does nothing to address the underlying issues of the heart that are the most important thing. This is exactly the mindset that Yeshua was pointing out and prodding at in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21-22 You heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be liable to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, You fool, shall be liable to the fire of Gehenna. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua made this point repeatedly. He took the commands that were given to Moses and he revealed their purpose to be something much more than simple rote action. He revealed that the actions that we are told to not engage with in the Torah, they're not there to create a list out of. They're not there for the purpose of creating checkboxes that we can then fill in and feel righteous when we succeed in getting them all. The commands given in the Torah were put there to reveal the deficiency in our own hearts, the deficiency in our own human nature. And this is the truth of the matter. 
We are deficient in our nature. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We, in our natural state, are offensive to His honor. And while in this state of sin, we will do things that cause us to go beyond our sin nature that's inherent in our flesh. And these actions that we do will then cause us to be guilty before God. And as we read in Matthew, sometimes these actions are not things we do, but they're attitudes we take or thoughts that we harbor. Attitudes of hate or lust or defending your honor, these things do in fact make us liable to judgment. They make us guilty before God. And when we are guilty, there's only one thing that can cleanse us of this guilt. And so he gave us his son as a sacrifice to cleanse us of our sins. But even more, he cleanses us of our guilt. Not only is our nature changed, but our conscience is cleared before the throne of God. We're no longer subject to the judgment when we've taken on the crucifixion of our Messiah. When we are in him, and when we have a new nature, we can live our lives without condemnation. We can live our lives with a clean conscience. We can legitimately let go of the sin that condemns us. And we can be filled with a new nature of love that seeks not the good of self, but the good of all. 1 John 3, 16-21 says, By this we have known love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brothers in need and shuts up his tender affections from him, how does the love of God stay in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall set our hearts at rest before him. That if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all. Beloved ones, if our heart does not condemn us, we have boldness towards God. It is this internal change that will affect an outward change in our lives. It is this removal of the sin nature from us and the putting on of the new creation and being filled with a new spirit. Not a spirit of human origins, but the spirit of God that changes our outward expression from one of rote obedience to rules to an outward expression of the love of God towards God and towards one another. And it is this removal of the guilt that besets us that allows us to have boldness when approaching the throne of God. 1 John 3.21 If our heart does not condemn us, we have boldness toward God. In Hebrews 4.16 Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace in order to receive compassion and find grace for timely help. But as long as our heart condemns us, we are not able to have that boldness towards God. We are not able to approach the throne of grace boldly and ask for help in time of need. And so I appeal to you all. If your mind is condemning you in any way, if your past is clinging to you and your conscience is not clean, then comes what is perhaps the hardest work that a person can do confessing our sins of the past and the present, recognizing that our current situations that have arisen from this past 
are the result of our human nature of sin. Search your heart for the guilt that lives in your flesh, and cast it all upon the throne of grace. Take the voice of condemnation that is not of God, and allow him to rip it out of your head. Do as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Humble yourselves then under the mighty hand of God, so that he exalts you in due time, casting all of your worry on him, for he is concerned about you. God truly cares for you. But as long as you're busy condemning yourself in your head, you will be incapable of approaching God boldly. You will always feel as if you are deficient and unworthy to come close to him. And guess what? You are. You are not worthy to approach God. Aaron was not worthy to approach God. Moses was not worthy to approach God. Not a single priest was worthy because of themselves. They were made worthy through the blood of the sacrifice. They were made clean so that they could, in this world, approach God. Just as we are made worthy through the blood of our sacrifice. Just as we are cleansed in our hearts and our conscience. So let go of the condemnation that holds you back. You have made mistakes. We have all made mistakes. Don't let those mistakes rule you. Let them go. Let God take them. John 8.36 says, If then the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Free of guilt. Free of condemnation but also free of sin and the nature that prevents us from moving forward. You can be free of condemnation. You can be free of condemnation from God. Now you simply have to let go of the condemnation that's coming from you. Because you cannot walk the path of life while weighed down by guilt, shame, sin, and death. Only in Yeshua can you be set free of these things, which will sustain you as you darish chai, as you seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai as we seek life. Shalom.